Hi, this is Elmore Leonard. I'm I'm listening to Film Sociology, and, and uh, it, it's a real program. It's great. It's time to hear what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly at the multiplexes and at the art house. Warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. You'll also hear about new and old films on Blu-ray and on DVD. Plus, you'll hear all the latest Hollywood gossip. I don't care! Okay, maybe not the latter, but it is time for Film Sociology with WFYI's film guru. Kaiser Shizzy! No, that's Matthew Sosi. It's such a fine line between stupid and clever, yes. Let's see how thin the line is. Here's your host, Matthew Sosi. Hello there, film lovers. Welcome to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msocey, that's M-S-O-C-E-Y, at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter, at Matthew Sosey. The show is available as a podcast. It's also available on iTunes. And we have a blog, which someday will be updated at filmsociology.tumblr.com. Just you and me today, although on the second half of today's show, I will replay my interview with documentary filmmaker Rick Harper, whose documentary, Roomful of Spoons, is now available for pre-order. So, uh, you know, you got to check that out. All right. Uh, with that in mind, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Beauty and the Beast. Um, <laughs> and and this is this this was fascinating. Um, here's the question, and and maybe I'm older now, and and you know, uh, critics are supposed to be uh, critics are known as curmudgeons. I understand that. Did, did we really need this? And I know, I know, Disney is now making live act, well, live action versions, sort of. I mean, human actors with, surrounded by CG. Last year, of course, was the Jungle Book, and then what? Two years ago was Cinderella. Cinderella was fine, I guess. Um, Jungle Book was okay. Um, not my favorite. Wasn't my favorite uh, uh, as an animated film to begin with. And and now we have this. What what is the problem? Is it's well done. It's it's decent enough. It's just not great. And it's a live action remake of a great animated film. Yes. One of the most romantic Stockholm syndrome stories ever told, no matter what language it's in. Um, and I was in college when the animated beauty and the beast came out, of course, at the, the beginning of the Disney Renaissance, that new phase that, uh, they've been writing on ever since. So, I I also understand that this film was not made for me. There is a you know a slew of younger people who maybe wa- grew up watching the video day after day after day, and the fact that they have another chance to see it. Look, uh, I know PBS and Masterpiece Theater, and you know every generation or every decade they're redoing Shakespeare or Jane Austen or Dickens or all that. I I, I get it. I I understand that. Um, but this film, uh, directed by Bill Condon, who, of course, gave us Green, Dream Girls, among other things, um, with the exception of some new material, um, doesn't really come close to the original. Um, the vocals are fine. We are now in a phase maybe where we are hiring movie stars that can sort of sing as opposed to having really, really strong voices. When your best singers are the foppish sidekick for the villain and your wardrobe, that's a problem. Um, Emma Watson and Dan Stevens, yes, yes, Downton Abbey fans, I can hear you. Um, and Luke Evans are all fine. You have Kevin Klein, and and you don't let him sing enough. And you have Audra McDonald, and she doesn't sing enough. 
Um, Emma Thompson's fine. Yes, I know about I know about Sweeney, but it's you you had a show with Belters in its animated version, and you don't have that here. Um, that being said, it's not terrible. It's just not necessary. So and and I know a slew of people are going to love it. I thought it was okay. It was fine. It was decent, but not brilliant. So there you go. Uh, can't wait to read your emails. Also opening in theaters this weekend, if you want to get away from the uh, the multiplexes, is a new film called The Last Word. This is with uh, Shirley MacLaine and Amanda Seyfried, who, both of which are executive producers on this, which made me wonder, did they make this so they could work with each other? Um, MacLaine plays, well, the kind of crabby old lady that she's been playing ever since Terms of Endearment. Uh, only this time around, she is a retired businesswoman who uh, is all about control, and she's going to have her obituary written in advance by a young, burnt-out journalist played by Amanda Seyfried. And yes, I wish all print journalists looked like Amanda Seyfried. Hi, Kayla. Um, so it's it's kind of Shirley's version of Get Low, the uh, Robert Duvall film from a few years ago. And uh, so there's the, the process of the two characters, the kind of crabby old lady and the young eye-rolling woman who, they, guess what, not really, care, not really crazy about each other at the beginning, but you know they're going to be pals by the end. Um, the performances by the two leads are fine. And story storytelling-wise, it's by the book. It's from a, a first-time writer, and it shows. Um, we have the the problems of trying to find nice things to say to her. We have a lo- uh, some decent people coming off the bench, like Philip Baker Hall, Tom Everett Scott, uh, Anne Heche. Um, there is There is attempted family reconciliation. There is uh, the older lady not only getting uh, trying to tap into the younger uh, reporter's brain and heart, but also uh, her helping out a young girl from a youth center. And, yes, there's a scene where all three generations are walking in slow motion with sunglasses with independent rock music playing. Yawn. Um, Shirley's character does get a job at an independent radio station. That's amusing. Um, and, and what she says about radio is actually my, was actually my favorite part of the film, but that's not the crust of the film. So anyway, if you like Shirley, so anyway, if you like Shirley and you like Amanda, you'll, you'll like this. It's, it's nothing new, but they're, they're fun together. So not not the strongest time, uh, not the strongest weekend, but there's still plenty of films out there like Logan and Get Out and, yes, even Kong to a certain degree. All right, moving on, um, heading over to IU Cinema. Um, again, this all depends on – I hadn't said it the first time. I always start it with again. It all depends on when you are listening to the show. So if you are listening at Saturday, you could hightail it down the Bloomington and see Jailhouse Rock at 3 o'clock as a part of the – uh, you know, ladies and gentlemen, reading is a skill. You do not have to hightail it if you're listening to this on on Saturday. If you're listening to this on Monday, you can you have time. So, all right. So let me go through the calendar, and this is what happens for not preparing in advance. At IU Cinema on Monday, March twentieth, at three o'clock, as a part of the Elvis and Hollywood series Jailhouse Rock from 1957. Uh, fine, fine drama. The, of course, m- the most famous scene is the jailhouse rock number that Elvis did uh, the choreography uh, w- for. I, we wish he did more. I wish he had done more. Uh, but it's a it's a good pulpy 1950s drama with uh, with a young raw Elvis Presley. And then at seven o'clock, as a part of the China remixed and the International Art House series, Monkey King Hero is back, animated feature from last year. Uh, Tuesday, the 21st, uh, the David Gatton lecture at three o'clock and then at 630 p.m., the David Gatton series, The Extravagant Shadows. Monday, the 22nd, the 1969 documentary High School at seven o'clock. Thursday, the 23rd, The Straight Story from 2005 as a part of the China Remix Story is series. That's at seven o'clock. Friday the 24th is a part of the China Remix series, Professor uh, Zhen Zhang uh, lecturing at 3 p.m. and the documentary The Love of Mr. N at 7 p.m. Saturday, March 25th, the Academy Award-nominated Tony Erdman at 3 p.m. and at 7 p.m. for the fans of Indian cinema, Om Shanti Om at 7 p.m. Sunday, March 26th, Rashan Russell and Kirk, The Case of the Three-Sided Dream at 3 o'clock, and Mama Rainbow 
at 6.30 p.m. Monday, March 27th, Papa Rainbow, the documentary from 2016 at 7 p.m. And Tuesday, March 28th, Alien from 1979 at 7 p.m. All of that is happening over at IU Cinema. Over at the Artcraft Theater in Franklin. Now this, this depends on when you're listening to the show. March 17th and 18th. So 18th, really. Uh, 2 and 7.30 p.m. Clue. Don't know which ending they're showing, but that's happening. Uh, March 24th and 25th. The Philadelphia Story. Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn, James Stewart. Well worth seeing on the big screen. And market calendars, April 7th and 8th, the Tim Burton Film Festival. Friday, April 7th at 7.30, The Nightmare Before Christmas. At 10 p.m., Batman. At 3 p.m. on April 8th, Corpse Bride. At 5 p.m., Pee-wee's Big Adventure. 7.30 p.m., Beetlejuice. 10 p.m., Mars Attacks. That's April 7th and 8th. April 14th and 15th, Showboat. With, uh, yes, Howard Keel and Ava Gardner. And April 21st is a part of the Real Women Vintage Wine All Ages Welcome on April 21st at 7.30 p.m. of Friday, The Notebook. I don't know if Mr. if Mrs. Sosie and Emma will be there. We will see. Um, cartoons for Cans on the 22nd at 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. That's a, a two different hour-long programs of Warner Brother cartoons. And then uh, April 22nd, for you 21 and over, uh, 7.30, April 22nd at 7.30 p.m., Brew and View, The Big Lebowski. At April 22nd. Speaking of the Big Lebowski, that's at the Artcraft Theater in Franklin. Over at the Strand Theater in Shelbyville on March 24th at 7.30 p.m., the Big Lebowski. So that's a Friday night. You can head over the... See, there's some good road trips there. Anyway, those are heading... That's at Shelbyville, so check that out. Not quite at drive-in weather yet, although Dairy Queens are open. Okay, uh, moving on to the video store. Uh, the big title this week for me is Fences. Um, and, and this film did better than I expected at the box office. Um, kudos to Viola Davis for winning Best Supporting Actress. I, I If I was voting, I would have voted Denzel for Best Actor. And if I was voting, I would have voted August Wilson for Best Adapted Screenplay. I didn't vote. But um, this is a film that made my top five, and I'm really happy it's it's gotten the notice that it, it has. It is August Wilson's Death of a Salesman. Is it stagey cinematic-wise? Yeah, it's opened up a little bit, but um, but I think it's supposed to be that claustrophobic. There's The play is called Fences, and part of it is the family stuck in this home, literally and figuratively. Um, strong Strong performances across the board. And uh, hopefully it'll get a bigger boost on home video. So, uh, yeah, really happy about that. Hope and can't wait to see the nine other August Wilson films made into films thanks to producer and director Denzel Washington. Now, I don't think he's going to be directing all not, all ten of them, but uh, if he's producing, then keep making The Magnificent Seven and all the other action films. I'm okay with that. Um, then we have Elle, the, uh, the film from Paul Verhoeven with Isabelle Huppert who uh strong contender if it weren't for Emma Stone it probably would have gone to Natalie Portman anyway but no she's very very good in this it's it's an odd kind of revenge drama of a businesswoman who's not the nicest woman in the world but uh but the the intertwinings of revenge and her private life and strand Paul Verhoeven likes to push the envelope in uncomfortable ways and he does this in a in an enjoyable way compared to Showgirls or Basic Instinct or and less satirical than, say, Starship Troopers. Uh, but anyway, very solid. We're checking out. And then we have two big title films that were released at the end of the year and didn't do well for, for a couple different re for vastly different reasons. Um, first, we have the sci-fi drama Passengers. This is the one with Chris Pine and Jennifer Lawrence stranded in space. They're part of a... Uh, a hundred year travel plan and they wake up way too early. All right. 90 year travel plan, but they wake up way too early and they are the only two ones, uh, two people awake on the ship, except for the Android bartender, nicely played by Michael Sheen. And uh, what happens when there's problems on the ship? Um, I have to give kudos to the trailers because normally the trailers give away way too much. And the, if you look at the trailers for Passengers, it does have a you know two people stranded in space, desert island feel to it. Um, what they don't share with you 
is a major plot point that happens early in the film. And that kind of, I think The Onion said it at the end of their review, and I kind of agree with them. This is not a date movie. And this sure as hell is not a first date movie if you've not witnessed it yet. Um, but there is, oh, there, oh, there'll be some really fun conversations afterwards. But uh, but that little piece of plot point is not uh, not in the ad campaign at all, and uh, it kind of blindsides you a little bit. So on top of the uh, will they won't they survive aspect of it that we've seen, and yes, Lawrence Fishburne and Andy Garcia show up, albeit briefly because it's really about these two, um, there's that plot point, which I'm not going to talk about. I guess, spoiler alert on a film that's been out for a few months. Uh, but I, this was the third film from Chris Pine in 2016. We had, of course, um, uh, Jurassic World as well as The Magnificent Seven. So I got a feeling maybe guess is we'd seen him in, in enough stuff and we're just kind of waiting for Gal- Guardians of the Galaxy 2. I don't know. Uh, so anyway, that is out there. Also, a big cast that I wish could do some Shakespeare. Instead, they did Collateral Beauty. This is the one with Will Smith where he is sad and he's missing his family and he's his, his daughter and he's writing letters to love and death and time. And you have a cast that includes Kate Winslet, Michael Pena, Edward Norton, Kieran Knightley, Helen Mirren, Naomi Harris, and... Actually, this is this is a film that has something else in common. There's a major plot point that happens at the beginning of the film that you don't see in the ad campaign at all. Um, if you've seen the ad campaign, the, the he writes letters to death and time and love, and Helen Mirren shows up as death, and Keira Knightley shows up as love, and we have another actor that shows up as time. Now, that would have been interesting if you went on the more fantasy side. This film doesn't. Um, it, it has kind of a, a lifetime movie feel to it. And what the Winslet, Norton, and Pena characters do is, is kind of a friendship deal breaker, I have to say, uh, if not illegal. Um, there's also some scenes with Smith and Naomi Harris as a counselor that, well, you kind of see coming if, uh, if you, you ever hear the voiceover guy cliche, things are not as they seem. So uh, another misfire by Will Smith. And, uh, well, this was this was I will say that Suicide Squad was better than this. So anyway, that is out there. So those are the new titles on video. A couple old titles of note, a couple uh, scary movies for different reasons. The 1977 thriller Demon Seed. This is the one where Julie Christie is impregnated by uh, a computer voiced by Robert Vaughn. And then the early 1984 Firestarter, where every other film was based on a Stephen King novel with Drew Barrymore and uh, George C. Scott, among others. Um, good performance from George C. Scott. Maybe doesn't hold up well. Have a few cocktails before watching that. All right, let's take a short break. And when we come back after the break, uh, my interview with Rick Harper, the director of the documentary Room Full of Spoons, which is about the room and is now available for pre-order. So stick around. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org.
Thank you, Tommy. Welcome back to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msocey, that's M-S-O-C-E-Y, at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter, at Matthew Sosey. Okay, uh, Room Full of Spoons, a documentary that Rick Harper made about the the legacy of the room and attempting the peek behind the curtain of Tommy Wiseau, is now available for pre-order. You can go to roomfullofspoons.com for all the information on that. Uh, so we're going to go back to my interview with Rick Harper to talk about the documentary Room Full of Spoons. Enjoy. Joining me on Film Sociology is a man who peeked behind the curtain, and it's a documentary called Room Full of Spoons. Of course, as you know, Film Sociology is your home for uh, Tommy Wiseau information. But Rick Harper is here. T- Rick, how you doing, my friend? Hey, I'm really good. Thanks a lot for having me, Matt. Um, I would say, tell us about your first experience of watching the film The Room. Uh, the first time I watched The Room, I actually uh, watched it at home. I was uh, with my wife, and I sat her down and said, all right, we're going to watch the worst movie ever made. So we pressed play, and I guess my initial thoughts were, this really can't be that bad, because the opening montage of San Francisco is so well shot and edited, and then you have the beautiful score by Mladen Mlecevic, and everything seemed fine. I'm like, how bad can this thing really be? And then Tommy walks through the door. Hi, babe. Character Johnny, and says, hi, babe. Yeah. And everything changed from that moment on. I believe there's a quote in your film that, that I, I can't remember who said it, but the uh, yeah the quote accidental good instincts came in the play at times. Yeah, yeah, that was a, a quote. I, I I was quoting Sandy Shaclair actually when I said that. I thought it was a, a really interesting way of of um, you know uh, qualifying Tommy's success. I was a couple of weeks ago. I was watching uh, the film version of Valley of the Dolls, and they were talking about the definition of camp of something that's played for serious, played seriously, but it winds up becoming unintentionally funny. And uh, the the room fits that, and then some. It sure does. Yeah, I would say. Um, so, how many times did you watch? I'm gonna say, when was it when you finally got to see it with an audience? Uh, it was just the next, like probably a few weeks after I saw it on uh, on DVD. I knew that, uh, you know, I, I did a little research on it, and I knew that uh, people were throwing spoons, and there was call-out lines at the theater, and it was like a big party. So it plays at uh, my local theater here, my local art house theater called the Mayfair. So only a couple weeks later, I went to see it, and uh, it was like, what an experience. It was so much different. Like, of course, it's fun to watch at home. Watching it in theaters is just a completely different experience. It's it's not even like a movie. It's more like an event. Every time you go see it, it's different. You know, people uh, shout things at the screen. They throw spoons. They dress up like characters. It's just uh, just a huge party. I say, did your wife make it through the whole film? She did. She did. She's not uh, quite as big a geek as I am. But uh, yeah, she actually sat through it with me. Uh, she even came to the Mayfair with me a couple of times. And you know, because of my, I guess you could call call it an obsession. With the movie, she sort of got into the whole cult phenomenon of it as well. You're a lucky man. Mine, mine lasted 30 minutes, <laughs> and and she got up and left. And my daughter, my daughter watched it, but she had to cover her eyes during the four love scenes, which takes up about a third of the film. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. It's not exactly a uh, a PG movie, but uh, <laughs> you know what? I don't blame your wife. It's uh, it's for a special type of person. Yeah. The room isn't necessarily for everyone. No, she pats she pats me on the head regularly about that. So <laughs> I was about to say because I remember I think it was the Onions AV Club. They talked about the day the day midnight movies died was when uh, Rocky Horror was available on home video. The fact that you could watch anything at any at any time, and I think the room I think they said the room single handedly helped bring back the midnight movies because since then there have been films like uh, Miami Connection and Troll Two that and Roar were where you have that midnight communal experience, and and uh, you know, I think the I think single handedly the room has been that champion. Yeah, I would totally agree with you because uh, I mean I'm um, you know I was a little bit young when Rocky Horror came out and stuff like that, so I never really got to experience that. But I would hear my uncles and my dad talk about Rocky Horror and going people dressing up, and it's not something that uh, it was always something that I was kind of fascinated with, but never got to experience until The Room came out. And it was this whole new generation of people going to midnight movies and dressing up and the call-out lines and, and really having a lot of fun with it. And then, of course, movies like uh, 
you know, Samurai Cop and Birdemic and stuff like that mm-hmm. uh, started uh, resurfacing, and, and it just sort of revived that whole cult experience. So how long did it take before you started to uh, started to do uh, pre- preparation to make the documentary? About a year from the first time that I uh, that I saw it. You know, I was going to see it every single month uh, at the Mayfair, and probably after about a year, the owner of the the Mayfair, you know, he always does a little introduction, and uh, he said, you know, I'm thinking of bringing Tommy uh, Wizzo to Ottawa. He's doing a tour. What do you guys think of that? So right after that, I went to see him, and I said, hey, I said, uh, you know, I really want to sponsor the event. At the time, I just really wanted to become a filmmaker, and the owner of the Mayfair, he's a filmmaker himself, so I wanted to sort of get into his circle, and then I figured if I sponsor this event, I get to meet up, I, I get to meet with him, and I get to meet Tommy Wiseau, so it was just really good math to me. So uh, we did that, and I got to meet Tommy, and immediately uh, I knew I had to do something with him. You know, I figured this is my opportunity to sort of hang out with somebody who I really admire and I think is really cool, and pursue my dream of, of becoming a filmmaker so i pitched the idea of doing a documentary and uh he was receptive right away initially yeah 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 he uh thought it was a great idea he's like yeah we could do it under Wizzo films and uh, i have a red cam and uh why don't you guys come next month uh, have a big event at the zigfeld in uh, new york city and you'll have a groovy time and you have groovy time <laughs> yeah that's right so, uh, you know, I was really excited. I'm like, oh, wow, like my, my dream of becoming a filmmaker is coming true. And, uh, you know, Tommy invited me to New York. So, you know, I assembled a crew and, um, and you know, hired a few assistants and went to New York and, and started shooting the documentary then. Well, when I talked with Tommy about this, which which you can hear a little later on in the show, was, I mean, from a filmmaking standpoint, it's hard to make a movie. It is hard. I mean, there there have been thousands of movies that have been attempted and not finished. So the fact that he was able to have a complete product, that's something to be said. That's something that's that's something that not everybody can do. And, uh, you know, so at the very least, there is that achievement. It's just nobody nobody quite expected what we were getting with, with his finished film. Right. Um. So... How many say? How many times do you think you saw it before you got to meet Tommy? You said you saw it, we were seeing it almost every week, uh, almost every month. So oh, I would say at month? least okay. a dozen times. Okay. And I mean, once you really get into it, you're not just watching it in theaters. You're watching clips on YouTube and the memes. So I was really I, I was living the room for about a year until uh, until I actually got to meet him. You know, mm-hmm. and yeah, I mean, it's and, and a lot of people think that you know meeting Tommy is funny and his movie's funny and it's it's ridiculous and there's bad things, but absolutely there is something to. Uh, admire there because you know he was a first-time filmmaker uh clearly didn't know what he was doing but no no real first-time filmmakers do you know mm-hmm. and uh just like you said a lot of people don't even finish their films or they just talk about it or you know they might have a script that they started or there's all types of obstacles of course money being one and uh, he was able to fight through all that and the result wasn't necessarily what he intended it to be but it is it's definitely admirable that he was able to finish it and and, uh, and and turn it into such a success. Now, I don't want to give away too much with your documentary, but one of the, was it your intent from the get-go to try to I use the term peek behind the curtain when it comes to Tommy Wiseau as a person? Not necessarily. No. Now, of course there's a, a lot happened after that trip to New York. Uh things sort of went awry with Tommy. Uh he wanted to take the documentary in a different direction. Now, you know, while I respect that, and in retrospect, it, it makes sense to me, but he just wanted to make basically an hour-and-a-half-long promotion for the room, right? which essentially is what a documentary is. You know, like you are promoting the movie, you're telling people that, that this movie exists and why it's so special and why it's so, you know, adored. But uh, as soon as I started interviewing certain people that he didn't want me to talk to, uh, and stuff like that, he backed away and just basically said that he didn't want to take part in it anymore. It was a bit discouraging initially, but then, uh, you know, like I said, in, in retrospect, it's a good thing because when you're, it, it would create a real bias if you have, you know, the, if the person you're documenting is a producer on the project. Mm-hmm. So once Tommy bowed out of the project, I decided to take it in a bit of a different direction. Uh, we interviewed all of the cast, most of the crew, a lot of people who just worked on the room peripherally or have other projects that are related to it. And then also, uh, then we decided to, you know what, there's a lot of mystery around who Tommy is. So we started doing a little bit of research to find out, to answer some of the questions that fans have been debating over for the past, uh, you know, 13 years now. Who were the people he didn't want you to talk to? Um, 
early on, I remember a conversation it was the day before I was leaving to uh, to my first time going to L.A. And uh, he told me, he said, I'm not against your project, but he said, don't interview Sandy Chaclair or the blonde guy with the glasses. <laughs> so I later found out that the blonde guy with the glasses was Michael Rousselet, who's a great guy, and I don't really know why he didn't want me to interview him. Uh, Michael Rousselet is the person who more or less discovered the room. He was one of the original fans. He was the one who uh. brought a lot of people to come see it and made it what it is today. You know, but uh, And then Sandy Chaclair is someone who he had a very public feud with. You know, Sandy claims that he was the real director of the room and, uh, and not Tommy. And uh, we touch on that in the documentary as well. Yep. Um, and then, of course, you know, I, I did interview, or I reached out to a lot of uh, Tommy's family members, and uh, he didn't like that too much either. But, you know, he was no longer at that point involved in the movie and didn't really have a whole lot of say in the direction I was taking it in. So I think that I dealt with that in a very mature and respectful way. But there are certain things in the movie that uh, that he didn't want me to to reveal, and certain people he didn't want me to talk to, and stuff like that. Here, yeah, the interviews with Sandy reminded me of William Goldman's claiming that he wrote Goodwill Hunting, and it's like there's there is now a parallel between the room and Goodwill Hunting. That's an interesting parallel because there's a, certainly a difference in quality between the two, but. Um, but yeah, no, Sandy's he's, he's very passionate. I mean, if you you can look up Sandy Chaclair's IMDb, he's a very very accomplished filmmaker. So it's interesting in itself that somebody who's so accomplished and has worked with literally everyone in Hollywood would want to take credit for something that's considered to be the worst movie ever made. So in itself, that that makes made for a really interesting interview. But uh, but there you have it. You know, he he claims that he directed it. And, uh, you know, that he set up every shot, told the actors what to do, and that Tommy did nothing on set except uh, act, really. And, and yell things like, don't touch the dialogue, it's genius. Yeah, and stuff like that, too. He's, when he was trying to change some of the words to, to uh, you know, to uh, translate a little bit better on, onto, uh, on screen, you know, that he would say, oh, don't touch the dialogue, it's, it's genius, it's meant to be this way, and stuff like that. So... He makes fun of the movie a lot and, and basically claims that while making it, he just thought, you know, no one's ever going to see this, so I'm just going to have fun, and that he sabotaged the movie. How much of that is true is really up for the viewer to decide. Mm -hmm. Well, and then you obviously talked to a lot of the cast and the crew, and and I think of the interviews with, uh, with Juliet, who is an extremely patient human being. Uh, and I know she talked about how it was, it was you know, it was a job at first, kind of horrifying afterwards seeing the finished result and then enough time has passed that she was able to embrace it was that the general consensus with most of the cast and crew i think so you know everyone was really open about participating in this i didn't really have to convince anyone to take part of it to take part in it sorry um, no one was you know really hiding from their quote-unquote fame that they got from being in the room you know everyone just sort of really has fun with it i think that um while we make fun of the movie we as in the fans while we make fun of the movie there's something really genuine about it and i think that the a lot of the actors and the people who took part in the movie know that we genuinely like them like they you know we, we go see them but it's not we, we don't make fun of them as a person or as an actor we're just making fun of this silly project that they were in you know, 12, 13 years ago. So, you know, while for Juliet especially, because, you know, she spends half the movie naked, and she's one of the actresses who really, you know, took it seriously uh, while making it. So she really thought she was making a good movie and that this was going to be her, this was really going to kick off her career as an actress and stuff like that. So, of course, initially she was really hurt, and, and she says, you know, during one of the interviews how she wanted to dig a hole 10 feet deep and just hide until this whole thing blew over. But I think, uh, you know, I, I think once she realized that this isn't going away, she, she might as well just embrace it and just accept, you know, the, the fame that she did get and and uh, whatever comes with it. And I think she realizes now that the fans really do love her. And that was an important goal of mine early on because at some of the screenings, people yell really mean things about her. Not so much anymore, but earlier on, people would, you know, say very shaming things about the way that she looked and, you know, stuff like that. So it was an uh, important goal of mine early on to really humanize her and show the fans, like, look, this is who Juliette Danielle really is. 
and uh, and I feel I was successful in doing that. She's an absolute sweetheart, and she came across that way in the movie. Mm, yeah, again, once again, a really, really good sport, especially you know her telling the story of watching it for the first time and realizing what what stayed on film. I mean, that's 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 extremely harsh. So. Um, a couple other connections we were talking about parallels of other films and and I remember in in some of the ad campaigns that there was somebody had had name dropped Tennessee Williams and the fact that he actually that Tommy actually told the composer that he was trying to make a streetcar named Desire or at least his version of it right right as far as as far as making a, a and I, I I use the term melodrama I guess in the traditional sense not in the in the critical sense and then another one I know he he brought up was was trying to make uh his own version of a rebel without a cause that's I think where the famous catchphrase is, yeah, is based yeah, upon yeah. Uh, but he but he but he really wanted to make a, a high drama for, of a feel from the 1950s yeah that's the, that's the impression that that uh at least he gave, you know, Mladen Milicevic, the the composer, and uh, and a lot of um, how he would, I guess, direct the actors. You know, tell them like you need to to have passion and it has to be dramatic. And you know, Greg Sestero was even quoted as saying that, uh, you know, that he said that he was going to make a movie so dramatic that people weren't going to sleep for two weeks after seeing it, and um, and you know, and, and stuff like that. And while you can see the passion in some of his acting, I mean, some of the scenes where he, he, you can tell he's trying to be really emotional and that this is, uh, you know, more than likely a very personal story to him, it just doesn't come across that way because, um, you know, I mean, I guess the quality of his acting and a lot of the directing and the story itself is, is kind of flawed and there's just so many things wrong with it that it's really it's hard to take seriously. Had it starred an entirely different cast, had it been directed by a different person, maybe he could have got those emotions across. Um, I think that's a reason that we love, why we love it so much, because we can see the effort on camera. Like we know there's something real there, but it just it, he just doesn't succeed in telling that story, uh, no, as dramatically as he wanted to. Can can you pinpoint when Tommy publicly decided to? Now, what is now has become his mantra of uh, people. People take the film for what it is. Do we know when that shift happened? Um, I think it was immediately after the premiere. Now, the earliest footage of Tommy saying that before a crowd that I have is from 2004 at the one-year anniversary from the release of The Room, where it was already popular amongst fans like Michael Rousselet and his friends and stuff like that. So he would rent small theaters. And, uh, and and sell tickets and you know give away T-shirts and stuff like that and uh, and there's a small clip in the documentary where he says you know he says keep in mind everything in this documentary was done on purpose everything was intentional and then the crowd sort of chuckles a little bit because even back then they knew that just impossible that this would all was all on purpose now according to you know the interviews that I have um, I think it was Scott Holmes that said that um, right after the premiere. So right after, like the you know the 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 first day that it ever screened, um, you know when people were laughing and stuff like that, uh, he went to to Greg and said, you know why are people laughing at my movie and stuff like that? And then Greg told him, oh, it's because your comedic timing is really good, and that possibly, if if you ask me, I think that, that probably sort of a light bulb came above his head, right? And then he just figured like, oh, okay, let me just market it this way since people they, they laughed and they're obviously not going to take it seriously, so. Instead of just getting discouraged and, and burying this project, let me just remarket it and, uh, and and see if people respond and, and use successful in doing so. And he's now he and Greg are getting paid for each appearance on college campuses and theater houses ever since. All over the world, yeah, they've uh, they, they've been all over the world together. They tour in in so many different cities, and it's uh, it's wild. Like I I've traveled to uh, like all over just uh, while filming uh, Room Full of Spoons. And uh, and it's it's incredible. Everybody knows Tommy. It's it's just really wild. Um, I guess I'm going through my notes, and I ha- I guess I have to ask, where is your respect, Rick? <laughs> Poor Tommy. He really he doesn't like me right now. While I still do have a tremendous amount of respect for him, we're not seeing eye to eye as far as the documentary is concerned. Um, you know, I, I think like we're in talks right now, and I think we're going to come to sort of an amicable resolution soon and uh you know but he's went online and done, done no made statements about uh him not supporting the documentary and shame on you videos and stuff like that he has this idea that you know that this 
movie is um, is, is just completely disrespectful towards him and is bullying him and, and all these things, these terms that he uses, which was, of course, never my intention. I mean, I think I'm a pretty respectful guy. Um, I can appreciate that if a documentary is being made about someone, that that person isn't going to agree with everything that's said, but a lot of that is, is out of my control. Uh, you know, a lot of it is people's opinions, and um, and and the rest is, uh, you know, and the research that I've done is is all factual. So, you know, I don't know what his specific concerns are, but um, you know, I, I think we're going to come to a, a, you know, an amicable resolution uh, very soon. But has there been? Have you been contacted by any form of lawyers at all? I, I'm sorry, Matt. I don't really think I could talk about that. It was worth a but, shot. I um, mean, you can take that answer for what it's worth. Fair, you know? no, fair enough. I had, to, yeah. I had to ask. So sorry, man. No, no, no. It's okay. Um, I was to say you. I think one of the one of the scenes that you uh, in the film is, I believe, the largest crowd you saw this with an audience was in Copenhagen. Yes. Now I wasn't there to witness oh. that. I did go to Copenhagen and we did, uh, you know, a screening of the room, and I did go back to screen a room full of spoons. But uh, it was um, the promoter, the Scandinavian promoter, uh, Elias uh, Elias Elliot. Um, yeah, he was telling a story about how they uh, screened it in Roskilde, and I hope I pronounced that correctly. And um, they had to turn away 2,000 people. They sold 850 seats, and they had to turn away 2,000 people, and it was just uh, it was just like the biggest screening of the room in, in Europe ever. Wow. And who created the video game? Uh, that's a gentleman named Tom Falp. He's the CEO of Newgrounds. And uh, they program a lot of video games for uh, for the web and for Xbox and, and stuff like that. And um, so, yeah, he's he's a really cool guy. He's um, actually in Philadelphia. And uh, so we drove down there and interviewed him. Really, really nice guy. He said it took them, I believe, six months to make the game. And if you, uh, you know, play, playing the game is basically like watching a movie. It's every line, but then, of course, there's all this, this other fun and creative stuff that's in it. And it's, uh, it's a real blast. Are the love scenes in the video game? I believe they are. I don't know how graphic they are, oh, but wow. uh, but yes, I, I believe they are. I think everything that's in the room and more is in the game. <laughs> there you go, folks. Have it at it. It's your will. Um, so I guess, how has it been promoting the film? How many festivals have you been to so far? Uh, we submitted to a whole lot of festivals. Of course, it's uh, it's, it's still new. We premiered in Spain at the Cutracon Festival in um, January, and that went really well. It was really, really well received. And then... Um, we have uh, a couple other festivals that are coming up that I'm not sure I can announce just yet, but okay. they will be announced uh, on our website, uh, roomfullofspoons.com, very soon. And we submitted to a lot, um, a lot of others. We did the premiere in my hometown uh, here in Ottawa, and uh, you know it was an almost sold-out event, and it was uh, again a great success. And we, um, you know, I did a little bit of touring while I was in Europe after uh, after the uh, Spanish uh, premiere. Went to Copenhagen, and we went to um, to the UK and just did uh, just a few test screenings just to see how audience were responding to it and to see if there were some edits that we can make. And the, the response has been unanimous. Like people are really, really enjoying it, uh, which is, is it's validating for me because I really made this for the fans. You know, being a big fan of uh, of the room and and uh, and you know, and it has such a an important cult following that I wanted to make something that was worthy of its fan base. And, uh, and so far people are really digging in. Has it been allowed to have be on a double bill with the room? Not yet. And that's something that I'm working on with Tommy right now, because I feel that it could be, uh, you know, that could be really successful. I think people are going to want to watch room full of spoons more than once. It's, um, you know, I've been told it's hilarious, which is fun for a documentary because a lot of times documentaries is just, you know, an overload of information, which is fun in itself, but some of the uh, the stories that people tell and stuff, people really crack up, especially in theaters. And, uh, and uh, you know, so I think that people could re- would really have fun with it, and I think it would play great with the room. So uh, it's, it's my hopes that that's going to uh, eventually work out, that we can uh, double bill it with the room. Well, I think, I think Room Full of Spoons is the hearts of darkness of, of the room itself. So, uh, you know, you, you have a good company as far as the making behind. Um Thanks. You're welcome. Have you? Do you have another project lined up for once this uh, once this dies down, or are you just still in the in the world of uh, promoting the film? We are promoting the film right now, and we have uh, you know some tours coming up. So I'm going back to uh, 
to Europe in June, and then um, you know we're going to Australia in July and, and stuff like that. And of course, we're going to be touring the U.S. Uh, in May and June probably. But uh, we do we are flirting with some ideas right now. Whether that's going to be another documentary or like a, a scripted film, we're not 100% sure on just yet. But uh, nothing worthy of announcing. But we do we are you know sort of toying with some ideas right now. And uh, what what was your take on the book? And I know they're trying to make a film out of uh, the disaster artist. Uh, the book was fantastic. The book was is uh, it's it's really it's, it's the room bible. Like I was um, I didn't really know what to expect because a lot of the stories I knew already and and stuff like that. But hearing it from Greg's perspective and and if you listen to the audio book, hearing Greg's impression of Tommy is just is absolutely fantastic. So. I, uh, I think the book is, is genius. You know, as a fan of The Room, I almost get a little emotional when I read it, you know. But, um, and the James Franco project, I mean, I'm really hoping that it's going to be, um, th- that it's going to translate well onto film. I mean, the audio book itself is, I think, 11 or 12 hours. So to try to condense all those stories and, and all those years into an hour and a half uh, film, or however long it's going to be, I, uh, I, I really hope that it, um, I, I hope it's going to be good. I really do, and I think James Franco's the right guy to play Tommy. I think he's going to do a fantastic job. He's a great actor, and um, and uh, yeah, I guess we'll see. I'm excited for it, though. Well, fans of the room, just I think once it, it, it's a very addictive film. Once you've experienced it, you want others to experience it. You want to know as much as you can about it, and uh, and I would say, Rick, congratulations on Roomful of Spoons as far as providing that for fans of the room. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Matt. I appreciate that. That was documentary filmmaker Rick Harper. His film, Roomful of Spoons, is now available for pre-order. So go to roomfulofspoons.com for more information. If you're a fan of The Room, you're going to want to peek behind the curtain with this documentary. Okay, got enough time to dip into the archives of uh, the, the library of interviews here at Film Sociology. Here is my chat with celebrity chef Claire Robinson. Enjoy. I know I did. Matt, can you hear me? Yeah. What's up? How are you, Claire? Good. How are you? You know, I do a lot of studio work uh, here at the station, and Wednesday mornings at 10, you keep me company. I do? Yes, you do. Oh, I love that. So. I love that. I'm glad you're there on Wednesdays at 10. That's my moment. Absolutely. I got to I got to see you cook Russian food this morning. Oh, did you see me poorly say Nostrovia? Better you than me. <laughs> yes. It took me a lot of practice, like about two days, sadly. <laughs> What is the five flavor forecast for 2014? All right, this is so cool. Um, the Cormac for their 125th anniversary. I'm really excited about this because it's a it's a company that has literally been around for 125 years. So they've given so much to us. We all know those red cap spices. They're absolutely amazing. But they're also they're giving back this year. So for their birthday, they're kind of giving us presents. And one of them is their flavor forecast. This is interesting because you think that the flavor forecast is talking about the hottest flavors and trends and food that you're going to see over the next one to three years, but you think that it would be all about spice. It's not. It's actually legitimately the new flavors and the new food trends you're going to see coming in and out of kitchens over the next one to three years, and I think that it's such a neat thing. They've been doing this for 14 years. One of their previous flavor forecast was in 2003 and it was chipotle and now that's everywhere right so they're obviously right on the money so um now with some of these have you developed uh, recipes for the uh, for the new flavors i didn't actually develop any of the recipes i'm just really excited to be working with them and talking about the flavor forecast so you know what's so exciting is this is something that really helps people like me come up with you know with what what I should be inspired by. So, for example, the trends um, have flavors within the trends. So they have five trends, chili's obsession, but within that, there's flavors like chili's to elbow. Now, chipotle is one of the chilies that we all know, red pepper chili flakes. But it's, you know, they're telling me and they're, that they're forecasting that more and more people are going to know about something like chili to arbo, which is actually a chili I love. So that kind of gives me this inspiration to start using that more in my recipes, and hopefully people will learn more about it and actually be able to find it. Um, they have clever compact cooking is one of their trends. They, but within that, you know, again, as I said, it's not all about spices. They're, 
they're forecasting that people are going to start to use pressure cookers more and more. And uh, because pressure cookers are um, more, uh, I guess, multifunctional is the best way to put it, they'll be the new slow cooker. <laughs> the way, you know, you can get dinner on the table faster than you can get takeout. So it's a really exciting way. They've written recipes, though, celebrating um, some of these new trends. And within the Clever Compact Cooking, the flavor as well of tea. So, hmm. Lapsang Sushong tea, is that something you've ever cooked with? Uh, I have not personally, but now that you've mentioned it, I'll add it to the list. You know, it's kind of like chicken or egg, which is predicting <laughs> what, but they're forecasting that tea will become a hot ingredient for people that have these compact kitchens, these small kitchens, which I'm one of them. I'm from Tennessee. I moved to New York. My kitchen is so tiny, it's the size of most people's bathrooms. That's <laughs> pathetic. <laughs> and so for me, I really have to think about every single thing in my kitchen. I don't have a pantry. It's my countertop. Mm. So I really try and use these ingredients in, in more than one way. Now, I'm a chef, but this is something that they're, they're predicting will happen in, in everybody's kitchen. It will become much more commonplace. Well, it's funny. I think what you mentioned the pressure cooker. I think everybody's worried about getting it locked correctly and you know getting ex getting steam shot in their face, that sort of thing. So I think once you actually know how to work it, then you know it'll be used more. Exactly. But you know the interesting thing is, it just takes that becoming more of a popular um, appliance. And for me, I would much rather replace appliances that don't have as much function with a, with appliances I can use. Um, in more than one way mm -hmm. and pressure cookers i mean it's everything from putting together a quick chowder that has chorizo and this tea in it and and uh smoky flavors of cumin and deliciousness um i'd rather have that on my counter and be able to, to last minute put something on the table than to have to think about it before i go to work because let me tell you i can barely remember my keys when i walk out the door <laughs> in the morning i'm not a morning person well, but, you know, it's, they're not, the funny thing is, you know, McCormick isn't selling pressure cookers. They're just predicting these really cool trends that you're going to see in kitchens, the flavors within those trends, like Mexico, you're going to see charred tomatillo, and Brazil, because we've got the World Cup and the Olympics, you're going to see guava and something called cassava flour. Well, so what does 2014 look like for you? I know you got the cookbook. You're, that's still running strong, and uh, we, we hope to see you on, on the telly more. Yes, I am. I am working on some new stuff. Um, fingers crossed that you'll get to see it uh, by spring. I'm, I'm excited, and you know, in the meantime, it's really fun because I'm kind of in my creating phase right now. Mm -hmm. So I'm writing a lot of new recipes and looking for inspiration constantly, which is really excited. That's why I said I'm. You know, the, these recipes are McCormick recipes, but I'm using them as inspiration to write my own. So you might see a couple of wacky new ingredients in my in my few ingredient <laughs> cooking because I'm still sticking with my few ingredients. That's my thing, and it's the way I like it. I'm, I just I, I don't like to count on more than one hand. It is less is more. I mean, it's, I think five ingredient fix is one of the smartest concepts. I, I mean, it, that really brings it to if if you can do it with five, you can make anything great. Exactly. And you know what's great is my, I'm so complimented when somebody comes up to me and says, oh, I added this ingredient to your blank recipe. And it's such a, it's, to me that's flattering because they made it their own. I'm giving them a wonderful base recipe that's good as is. But from there, that's how you really learn to cook. I want people to be the chef of their own kitchen. Mm -hmm. So when you learn about new ingredients and you learn about new flavors that are supposed to hit your kitchen and you add them to, re to recipes you already like, and you're putting, you're a chef, and you are the executive chef of your kitchen. Now, this is a film show, so I'm asking, have you, seen, have you been able to watch any new films recently? Films, oh my goodness. Uh, yes, I have. And I'm really excited. One of them has not come out yet. Um, the Wolf of Wall Street, I was able to see a little trainer thing. Uh-oh. It was awesome. <laughs> Excellent. I, it was just awesome. I didn't even know how to tell you. It was so good. Um, I was, I can't, I guess, I can't tell you, I don't want to spoil it. Okay. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. I'm really excited. I really want to see the new one, the American Hustler. Yes. That's coming out. I think that's going to be great. Um, and, you know, I'm in New York, so we get into those indie films. Of course. Tribeca. Yes, Tribeca. Tribeca. And the, I, lo I actually live near the Angelica, so I go there and hit the new indie films. I just, you know, it's, it's exciting. Right now, I feel like it, we've got a good film season coming up. What are your, some of your favorite cooking moments in cinema? I mean, have you, have, can you see somebody when, if they know how to work uh, in the kitchen or not when they're being filmed, movie-wise? Uh, yes, I, I do. As a matter of fact, we all seen Kitchen Confidential, right, with, uh, with 
Catherine Zeta-Jones. Yes. She really worked hard to get the process of putting on her wife, the apron, the, the, the way she put them on. It really is for chefs, especially restaurant chefs that are in there every day, it is almost a ritual. And it's a very distinct, very specific um, process that's done the exact same every day. You don't miss a beat. She practiced that through and through, and I really felt like she she looked like she knew what she was doing. She held a knife correctly. But, yes, I catch all the time people that are holding a knife incorrectly, and, <laughs> and they, you know, they, they're they supposed to know what they do, they're doing, and in one second I can tell they don't. One of my favorite ones, though, Chocolat. Yep. You, that got the sexiest chocolate, like, moment on television. It, it also helps that Juliette Binoche has the over-the-shoulder dress handing you chocolates. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's just good. It was good. I loved that one. My chat with Claire Robinson. You're welcome. All right, we got a couple more minutes. Uh, I want to play a little bit of a soundtrack I finally purchased recently. Uh, it's amazing what you can get online. But uh, this is an Italian import, the 1974 soundtrack to Death Wish, music composed and conducted by Herbie Hancock. Enjoy. Here's the main theme. Just a taste. From 1974, that was Herbie Hancock composing, conducting, and performing the music from the 1974 Charles Bronson film Death Wish. I don't believe the album is available in the States. This was an Italian import that I recently purchased. So um, this is a a soundtrack, I think, like Trouble Man by Marvin Gaye that deserves a two-disc treatment. So uh, whoever owns the rights to this, get get going on that, would you please? Some of us uh, music nerd film lovers... Music lover, music film, film music lovers. It's been a long week. Uh, we would really like that. So, all right. With that in mind, ladies and gentlemen, here's some words to live by. Silent breed is people. Zardoz has spoken. Go see a good movie. You deserve it. Kong is still out there. So is Get Out. So is Logan. Uh, so is the oh the La La sing along version of La La Land. If you get a chance, check that out. Uh, Emma and I got to see that earlier this week. And singing with my daughter. Um, that's that's a that's a major dad daughter moment, especially when she's fifteen and cynical, and I'm forty something and cynical. So if you get a chance and uh, see the sing along version of La La Land, do so. And uh, always double-check and see if it's a sing-along version of any film. Well, worth asking. Anyway, until next time, take care, everybody. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. Good afternoon, California. Good afternoon, Fort Myers. Good afternoon, Michigan. Thank you.